Hello, and welcome to the Emo Arch Nemesis podcast. This is your host, Chase Tremaine, and I'm excited to announce something new for you. This week, you get two episodes. You see, by nature of this format, namely people with a mutual love for music sitting down and talking, sometimes those conversations go longer and deeper than expected. So what you'll be hearing today is half of a conversation that I had with my regular co-host, Mark, and our guest host, Timothy Estabrooks, where we hone in on the discography of the band Copeland. Then keep your eyes peeled for part two this Friday, February 9th, where we will discuss topics such as the so-called greatest Christian albums of all time, factions within Christian music, what makes an artist Christian or not, and the effects that touring can have on an artist's faith. You won't want to miss it. Both episodes this week are sponsored by Elevation Collective, the new gospel worship project from Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Elevation Collective is releasing its first album, Evidence, this Friday, featuring the talents of Israel Houghton, Tasha Cobbs Leonard, Ty Trebet, and more. So before today's conversation gets started, I'm going to play one song clip from the album and stick around to the end of the episode to hear another clip. This sample comes from the song Do It Again, featuring Travis Green and Kiera Sheard. This is Sicko, Sicko Rice, and you have Chase Tremaine on the other end. How are you guys all doing? Yo, yo, yo. You guys is plural <laughs> because you got me here and as a special guest, my arch nemesis, the one and only Timothy Estabrooks. <laughs> yes, I am here. Good to be here. Are you guys really arch nemeses? I think so. Oh. I think so. We've Because... I mean, it's mostly because Chase has bad opinions, but... Yes, I, I have incorrect <laughs> incorrect relative opinions. and uh, Well, that's why we invited you here, Timothy, because you need to correct Chase. That's what I've been yeah. trying to say all along. It's You're yeah. not wrong. I think that the number of things that we agreed on was definitely shorter than the things we didn't. It, so, From what I remember, the few things that we did agree on, we also agreed on for completely different reasons. Yes, I believe that is true. It, it was accidental agreement. Like, uh, if if we both loved an album, like your favorite songs would be my least favorites. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So, question for both of you guys then: Do both of you love Copeland's Exoria or Exora? Exora. Exora for different reasons. Oh, I don't know. We, I mean, I don't know if or why Chase loves it. Um, I don't know if he does. I guess I don't know if or why Chase loves it too, but that is you. That is the album that we are discussing this week for our segment. Is it five stars? Is it five stars? I bet you can guess. 
Timothy being my arch nemesis if my answer to that question is yes or no? I bet since my answer is yes, yours is probably no. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> oh, this is going to get juicy. Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah. I, uh, that's okay i will I, I will vindicate my opinion over the course well of the how next about how minutes. about i start with the middleman argument all right okay. and then you'll have to mediate the two of us after you present your argument to open things up with the copeland album Ixora released november 24th 2014 it is the most recent album from copeland their fifth and uh their first album after reuniting um so that's just a little bit of background information there uh, you know what do i think about it you know i i like it simple enough i like it i think it's a really good uh relaxing listen a really interesting listen a really nuanced listen i don't necessarily think i love it but so kind of for the record then uh, i bought this album a couple of years ago i've listened to it a few times but um, not necessarily a lot. Uh, when Chase and I decided that this would be the next album for our Is It Five Star segments, I listened to it probably like four or five more times this week. And, you know, I'll be honest, this week was kind of a tough week. And I was really stressed, really frustrated. And, oh, by the way, for those that I meant to say this at the start of the podcast, I introduced myself as Sicko. That is because... As of the recording of this, I have the flu. So, uh... I'm calling him Pukey. Fun tidbit. Okay, <laughs> Pukey. Anyway, <laughs> side note. I think my current view of this album is greatly influenced by my, kind of my experiences of listening to this album in the past week. Because, you know, I've had, you know, some really frustrating days, some really angry days, some really... I'm a little old to use the word angsty, but... Fine, I'll use it. Some kind of angsty days. It's the natural effect of the type of music that we listen to, right? I, it, Copeland is an emo band. Am I right? Am Copeland I right? Copeland is an emo band. Uh huh. Are they still though? I've I've heard Aaron own it. A a a. They definitely were. I don't know if I. Would I'm say they starting still are. here. This is me. You guys will both get your opportunities. You're acting a little angsty there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't anger a man with the flu never good you're right i'll have grace for now if i am very <laughs> angry i will throw up through this microphone and oh, it will God. come out your end yeah i'm editing that out <laughs> <laughs> so back to where i left off um you know my view of this album is probably greatly influenced by my listening to it this week because I think that it's one of those albums that it was just the right time for me to be listening to it. For the record, no, I wouldn't got, not give this album five stars. This is a four-star album to me. It's an album that I think is a great listen uh, in certain situations. Um, I do think that, you know, with just the mellowness and the just kind of... Uh, I'm not thinking of a good word here, but soothingness. Um, it's not an album that you can probably listen to in any situation. So uh, before we transition into Timothy, I'm curious, uh, do you have any sort of history with Copeland or uh, particularly different opinions about other albums from them? I don't necessarily have a lot of history with Copeland. I've listened to, uh, I've listened to Beneath Medicine Tree 
Um, I kind of have the same thoughts about that album. I think Ixora is a little bit more kind of experimental than Beneath Medicine Tree. Uh, Beneath Medicine Tree is kind of more straightforward, just like, oh, emo. Um, I've listened to In Motion, uh, Sleep, Eat, Sleep, Repeat. I have not listened to You Are My Sunshine. Ooh. Uh, (laughs) Oh, wow. Interesting. uh, Interesting. I take it from that that you think I should. Well, yeah, I, I think, think everybody should listen to every Copeland album, so that's not surprising. But Okay, well, <laughs> I mean, there we go. Um, you know, comparing them to the last albums that I've heard, Ixora definitely feels a lot more nuanced, a lot more experimental. Um, you know, there's some programming elements. Actually, I was surprised when I re-listened to it this week just how little uh, programming elements, electronic elements there are in the music. Because my first impression from listening to it years ago was that, oh, this is, you know, this, this definitely sounds a lot more electronic than their last albums. Um, you would have understood the transition if you were familiar with You Are My Sunshine. Because I think You Are My Sunshine is, is the main album that introduces those elements. But it also flows very uh, continuously from Eat, Sleep, Repeat. It's almost like they took a similar batch of songs and just added a lot of brand new sounds to them. And Aaron, Aaron Marsh worked very specifically with Aaron Sprinkle to get the right, like otherworldly sounds that they were going for on you're my sunshine. I think like if you just go album to album, they have a very smooth logical transition in sound over time. Yeah. And I would say that in some ways you are my sunshine is even more mellow than Exora. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, there we go. Um, I mean, there are my thoughts. They're not entirely profound, but uh, now it's time to start moderating, is it? Uh, so uh, we'll do this uh, Lincoln Douglas style. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, Timothy, you start off, and then we will give Chase the chance to rebut, and then Timothy <laughs> will get one more chance to rebut Chase's rebuttal. How does that sound? Golden. Sounds good. All right, so Timothy, you wrote the five-star album review. Tell me, do you still think this album is five stars? I do. Um, And first of all, when you were introducing the album, I was surprised that it came out in 2014. For some reason, that seems a lot longer ago than I remember it being. Agreed. Um, But (laughs) um, I do agree, and... I do still agree with myself, I guess I should say. Um, at the same time, I would say, paradoxically, I don't think it's a perfect album, um, because I don't know if such a thing even exists. But, I mean, there are definitely you know moments where I would think, oh, that was a little weird what they did there. Um, you know, maybe I didn't like that part as much, but as a whole, I still would call it a five-star album. And there are definitely caveats to that in the sense that I don't think I can ever, I mean, well, I don't think anybody can ever review an album objectively because obviously it's it's a matter of opinion, but I think I especially am not capable of reviewing a Copeland album objectively because (laughs) of my own history with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I I mean, I grew up listening to Copeland like they were they were part of my formative teenage years. Um, yeah. So I just love them as a whole. Um, and obviously there was the element of, oh my gosh, they're getting back together. Um, 
you know, the excitement that comes with that. So there's always the possibility of sort of riding the hype train influencing my opinion. Although I feel like by the time I actually wrote the review, you know, three months after the album came out, that might have died down a little bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and another side note, one thing that probably gets lost in the discussion of the album is the fact that they did announce that they were coming back and recording a new album on April Fool's Day, <laughs> which <laughs> was very cruel. Um, fortunately, it turned out I to be I think true. I remember that, actually. But, um, yeah, so I guess from from a you know, a mile away viewpoint as a music critic, what I really like about the album is it's a very, it's a very logical um, extension of what Copeland had been doing through their career. Mm -hmm. And it, I feel like it is the, they, it is experimental. Like you were saying, they did new things and they still managed to make it be a Copeland album like the things that make Copeland Copeland are still there. And that's things like, you know, the very, the very like honest, like naked sentimentality of the songs and the lyrics. Like there's nothing subtle about the emo-ness of the lyrics and there never has been with them, which I appreciate. Like they're very genuine in, mm -hmm. you know, they don't try to be sophisticated in the, the emotional message that they're conveying. It's very appealing, especially when you're listening to it for the first time as like a 14 year old. Um, and then when you go back and listen to it and you're like, right. oh, that's kind of like almost overkill. But, you know, you still have that like a nostalgic affection for it. And then they've sort of progressed. You know, every new album that they did had a little more experimentation to it. You know, I think In Motion was still fairly straightforward, but there were still some unique songs in there. And before Ixora came out, I would have said that In Motion was my favorite of their albums. Interesting. Um, but, you know, and then Eat, Sleep, Repeat, they, you know, it still was a fairly straightforward kind you know, of, you know, rock-influenced emo album, but there was, they were still, it was getting, they were getting mellower, and there were a little more of the, like, almost, you know, like, almost jazz influences. Right. Um, I think and, they started taking the more like heavier guitar elements that used to actually make portions of songs heavy and kind of reincorporate that into the softness. And somehow they were right. able to take these really crunchy big guitars and, and layer them into that mellow mood. Right. Um, and so I think by the time they got to Exora, they were really like, I think Aaron Marsh feels very comfortable with where he's at artistically and he's willing to try new things and he produced the album, and I think the production is phenomenal. There's a lot of just little interesting tidbits in the production um, that I think show the maturity of the band. Um, you know, mm -hmm. very well placed string sections and little uh, little synthesizer lines, and um, you know, like even this sort of uh, uh, incremental buildup, like in the intro of Disjointed where there's there's an additional element that kind of gets added and then we get the piano and yeah it, i think it just all works together really well and they definitely took some risks in making songs that were a little bit maybe out of their comfort zone like you know lavender does not sound like a typical copeland song no he's almost um, rapping <laughs> <laughs> yeah almost um and then there are some songs where the you know the, the, i guess depending on your point of view the 
the transitions, like the verse chorus transitions could be seen as either being interesting or jarring potentially. Um, yeah. Like um, feels like a lie is kind of like that. Um, and I can make you feel young again. It has, you know, sort of some that wacky, time signature like, change. changes. Yeah. Swing. Yeah. Um, and I like that about it. Um, I think it makes it a more interesting album. And I also like the fact that, um, you know, I, I feel like I have grown up with Copeland as they are growing up. And so now we have, you know, Aaron Marsh is in a place where he's married and he, I think he has some kids. And so his perspective mm-hmm. from Exora is, is from a much more like sort of, he's very comfortable with his adult life and the simplicity of it with, and I appreciate that from, you know, I'm sort of in that same place. I don't have any kids, but, um, I relate a lot to the message of songs like have I always loved you and ordinary um, and in her arms, you will never starve, which is a a whole, a whole story in its own right, um, which I can get into. It's a little more serious. I might wait until I might let Chase have his opinion. So I'm not uh, trying to uh, steal the, steal the thunder, I guess. But yeah. So for all of those reasons, um, I really like it. I think it's uh, it's a lot more diverse than some of their other albums. Um, I think I would say it's probably their most diverse album, which might be its one flaw at the same point, but I really appreciate that variety. I think I can agree that it's probably their most diverse album uh, from the albums I've heard, of course. Right. <laughs> uh, so I'm the moderator here. Uh, thank you very much, Timothy uh chase rebuttal thank you timothy (laughs) my rebuttal uh so this might show how i might be a different sort of copeland fan i don't necessarily like them for the same reasons that other people like them historically that that's a theory uh and and my reason for that theory is that from my judgment, Exora leans into the worst of Copeland's habits and the worst of Aaron Marsh's tendencies as a songwriter and producer and vocalist. And that's not to say that they're all these terrible, awful things, because obviously there are people who love Exora a lot. And, you know, Timothy, you weren't the only person to give uh, Exora a perfect score on the interwebs (laughs) Uh, to be clear um i don't think copeland have ever put out a bad album i think beneath medicine tree is the closest thing to that um but i love in motion a whole lot i love eat sleep repeat a whole lot that's still my favorite album by them and i liked you are my sunshine at first it grew on me a lot over time to the point where i I do love it now and it's right up there um so those three albums I, i hold in great esteem and you know, I wish that Exora would grow on me the way that You're My Sunshine did, but it hasn't. And it's mostly because when I listen to it, it it's these, like the, the, the little tiny things that I didn't love about past Copeland albums seem to be magnified here. Um, that's um, some of the, uh, like, lyrical like, cliches or kind of the, the over emo-ness that y'all are referring to. Um, 
lyrics that are just way too on the nose. Um, like that much too much line <laughs> in the opening track kills me every time I hear it. Um, the, uh, the turn of phrase, so to speak, in World Turn. You watch the world turn, you watch the world turn, it's back on you. I, I just don't think that works. I think it's it's an obvious attempt at trying to do something clever. And for me, uh, it fails. And I also just think, uh, well, I guess I have a few more things. And I do apologize that I'm dogging on an album that you love so much, Timothy. <laughs> it's it's, it's a- funny that we, like, we know we disagree so much. And when Mark had the idea of having you on this episode, I was like... I don't, I don't necessarily want to, to say to his face uh, the reasons why I don't like an album that he loves so much. Um, well, this is why I didn't want to get into my entire emotional emotional history with the album because I don't want I didn't want to make to, you to feel like you me. need to hold back. <laughs> Just make me feel young again. Um, you would make a bad politician, <laughs> Timothy. Oh, I absolutely would. <laughs> we all agree no that. Question about um, that. So songwriting as a whole um, something that I think a good song does is that it convinces you that every part of the song is supposed to be there like you listen from zero seconds to three and a half minutes or four and a half minutes and if a song has been good then you've been in it the whole time and you're not thinking if it's a good song you're not thinking that melody was completely out of the place uh, that chord progression totally took me out of the song. Um, that felt way too structured. Um, and Exord doesn't really accomplish that for me too often. Um, a lot of those experimental decisions that are made throughout the album, whether it's a, a switch in drum beat or a string session coming up, are things that seem too calculated to me it's the kind of thing where like you have a song on paper and you're looking at the different sections of the song, like, okay, what's an interesting thing we can do for this first. Okay. We'll do that. What's an interesting thing we can do for this chorus. Okay. We can do that. Um, and so there's a lot of songs that don't convince me that the artistic decisions they made were the right ones. Um, that's definitely Hmm. not true of the entire album. I think songs like disjointed and erase are as good as Copeland gets. Like, I think those are incredible classic Mm -hmm. Copeland tracks. Um, whereas songs like, uh, lavender have I always loved you are, are songs that just like not every piece of the song works for me. Not everything convinces me that it belongs. Um, and while like, have I always loved you has an incredible chorus. The second half, especially if in her arms, you'll never starve. Um, there are things that are utterly beautiful and things that do really work from, from front to uh, back. Uh, it doesn't hit that for me. Um, and I, I know that the, the orchestration and some of the um, musical instrumental decisions that they made are the reasons that I don't like these songs too much because I actually greatly prefer the twin version. Um, I would... I would land Exora somewhere around three to three and a half stars where twin would easily be four, maybe four and a half, but probably not. Um, and the, the twin version, what makes it specifically different is, uh, 
that it has for some songs it has completely different vocal performances from Aaron and I think they're just a little stronger I think for too much of the album he's it doesn't seem like he's singing too much like is a, that 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 whisperiness that he has um it there's just too much of the album where it doesn't feel like he's actually singing to me like he's actually putting passion into his lyrics um sure and I'm a very vocal centric listener um like if I don't enjoy your voice and like feel your voice then I'm never going to care about what your lyrics are um the twin version fixes almost all the problems that I have with the album um the uh the the whole album is a lot simpler um it's a lot more minimalist in a way that I think works extremely well for Aaron's compositions mm-hmm. it's the twin version has a lot of songs where it's just like one, two, maybe three instruments carrying the whole way through. And it's so it's a much more consistent listen. It doesn't have the random instruments coming in and out. And for listeners who don't know, the twin version of the album is, was made as both a separate listening experience and to be listened simultaneously alongside um, the original version. So sometimes like vocally you're hearing the same melody sometimes you're hearing a harmony sometimes it's just sitting out all together and he'll just come in for the choruses of the songs um and it it is fascinating how in that whether it's the him leaving out some of my least favorite verses like i think lavender on the twin version i think he sits out of the verses um or have I always loved you? He's basically singing a harmony the whole way through. And I think the, the, I actually enjoy the, those melodies more than the original. Um, I think like the only basically disjointed and erase. I think those are the only ones where I prefer the original version over the twin version. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I, yeah, I, like I, um, like I guess I mentioned earlier, I've, I've listened to the, to them together but i've not listened to the twin version by itself um which now i'll have to do that yeah and i and then likewise i need to finally get that full experience of listening to them at the same time and i'd be very interested if uh my my love of twin carries over into also making the original version more appealing to me so. yeah after after only listening to the synced version once I definitely still like the the bass version better than the mm-hmm. combo. Um, was it like too busy but, for you or? Um, sometimes. Was it much and... too much? <laughs> <laughs> it was, it, it wasn't quite. Yeah. But, um, yeah. No. And part of it might've just been because there were, I've listened to the bass version so many times that, um, you know, I have certain expectations. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess, um, I think that our disagreement is probably a philosophical one and not necessarily an artistic one because I think that I don't think that necessarily anything you said is incorrect. Um, you know, cause like I said in my first go through, you know, there are definitely sort of little decisions that at least the first time I listened to it, I was like, huh, that is different and maybe not necessarily what I would have expected or 
or wanted to hear. Um, yeah. But you're definitely coming at it from a fairly, uh, you know, analytical slash intellectual viewpoint of looking at the individual elements of the songs um, and the lyrics, you know, assessing them from probably a more, uh, maybe a little more objective viewpoint. And that is how I would approach most albums that I listen to. Um, But I feel like, I definitely feel like the appeal of Copeland from sort of day one was their emotional effect. Um, and I think you really have to buy into the, the emo-ness um, in order to really, and you have to listen to them from an emotional level to really get everything from them. Um, you know, cause, and I, and I agree with you that um, Between Medicine Tree is probably their weakest album, but even, Woo, Timothy and Chase agreeing <laughs> for once even in my so, life. I mean, I, obviously, I still, um, I still love that album. But there are so many songs on that album, and I just realized I called it "Between Medicine Tree," not "Beneath Medicine Tree." But um, there are so many songs on <laughs> that album that are like almost ridiculous in how emo they are. Um, <laughs> and it's I just wish that every- "Walking Downtown" didn't exist. <laughs> that one is not great. Um, <laughs> But like, geez, like, I mean, like priceless and coffee, like it's just so over the top. And it's like, none of those are like particularly great songs, like artistically, like they're fairly simple. Yeah. Um, You know, there's certainly nothing groundbreaking about them, but if you can if you connect with them emotionally, you're like all in. And so, and that's pretty much how I always listen to Copeland. Yeah. Um, and, and so that probably lets me not see some of the flaws um, quite as readily or makes me more easily forgive them. I definitely had a very, like very strong emotional response to Exora, mostly just for, because of coincidentally when it was released, it came out in a very difficult time of my life um, and like a very difficult time in my marriage. And so it was, like listening to songs like Have I Always Loved You and Ordinary and especially In Her Arms You Will Never Starve, like those songs meant meant something to me on an emotional level. And it so it was much easier for me to look past the you know, what the what would seem cheesy if you were not into it emotionally. And so um I felt like those I felt like those songs were very much like written for me. And I think that that's sort of the, been the appeal of emo music from day one is like, so angsty mm-hmm. people can relate to it. Um, and it just so happened that Aaron Marsh is now, he's not an angsty teenager anymore. He's an angsty adult. And I was a very, <laughs> and, and I was an adult in a very angsty place when the album came out. And so I, I definitely connected to it in that way. Um, so that probably, you know, and like I said in the beginning, I can't be, I can't really be all that objective about Copeland. And so, um, that's just another reason why on top of it. I had a really fun experience today when I was listening, uh, to Exora again and without realizing this was going to happen, um, 
my stream went directly into just Copeland Radio. And so mm-hmm. it's really awkward to transition straight from Inner Arms, You'll Never Starve to uh, Pin Your Wings. Ah, uh, yes. And I was like, oh man, this is what I love about Copeland. And it's like the really big, like, like almost cheesy guitar rock, almost cheesy lyrics, but such like emo- emotional gusto and huge hooks with his massive falsetto. It's just like, yes, give it to me. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Well, okay. that was this week's edition of Is It Five Stars? Yeah. So, uh, moving moving into our. Uh, uh, we're not going to find a smooth segue, so I'll just dive in. Um, which that. Back in 2001. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, our other weekly segment is uh, where Mark and I force each other to listen to an album we've never heard before. Last week, he gave me... Amy Grant's Lead Me On. Lead Me On by Amy Grant. And the fun fact about that is that years ago, uh, CCM Magazine made a list of the greatest Christian albums of all time and put that number one. Um, Number one album of all time? Are you kidding me? Um, (laughs) No, Lead Me On is honestly great. Um, I uh, So I'd never heard it before. Some of the songs just barely had that sense of familiarity. Like maybe I've caught a song on the radio in like my childhood. I have um, heard uh, both "Lead Me On" and 1974 on radio. Actually, recently in the past, you know, five or four or five years. I I mean, the radio was intentionally doing like a throwback day. Yeah. But you know, I have heard them recently. Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's just that small sense. It wasn't anything like. Oh yeah, I remember this chorus. It, so it's something that if I did hear it, it was like way back in my childhood. And I, yeah, I don't, even, I don't listen to Christian radio anymore. It's been years. Um, I think like 2007, I moved away from like the Christian pop stations to listen to the Christian rock stations. But then you know, after a few years, the local one uh, had to shut down. So it is what it is. But as far as Lead Me On goes, uh, I, I really don't have too much of a history listening to Amy Grant. Um, if I were to choose between her and her husband, Vince Gill, I would always choose Vince Gill. Her voice doesn't appeal to me, but I think, as as has been proven to me time and time again, uh, if you have good enough songs, and I guess if you're at least a good match for those songs, then it, you can win the listener over, which is definitely the case. I think uh, what Amy Granny is good at, she showed that throughout this album. Um, and whereas normal, normally just her, her very characteristic voice, uh, would be a, a turnoff for me. Uh, this album really did, uh, get me. I just think the, the songs are strong enough. So like, I, I have no idea why this would be considered the best Christian album of all time. <laughs> uh, but I think it's undeniably a good album, possibly very good. I had a funny realization in it where, uh, Track two, the title track, was on. I was like, man, why does this sound so much like Michael W. Smith? And I started thinking. I was like, this specifically sounds like his Eye to Eye album. And so I go back and do some research. And this album and Eye to Eye came out the same year, uh, 1988. And they both have songwriting credits on each other's second songs on the album. So (laughs) Michael W. Smith and his main writing partner, Wayne Kirkpatrick, uh, wrote Lead Me On with Grant. And then on Eye to Eye, the second track of that album is Secret Ambition, and Amy Grant co-wrote that. 
so the uh, parallelism there, I think, is is hilarious. And so it felt cool to like notice that and to hear it. Um, and these were definitely like you know these artists are such good friends, and their their and careers have mimicked each other. Forever. Oh, gosh, I did Lord not mean Lord to reference that. Oh gosh! Well, apparently that's the, like what the third best Christian song of all time. <laughs> um, but uh, it it really is a great album. It's funny. So last week was Eric Champion. I said that the the last two tracks didn't appeal to me. It was kind of similar on this album. The last two tracks lose me a little bit, and the two tracks before that, uh, "Wait for the Healing" and "Sure Enough," I think are. They bring the album alive again and, and really make it fit, feel uh, like it's got your attention once more, even though we're c- close to the end of the album. But uh, there's something about just the the melodies and the repetition mixed with Amy Grant's voice that makes Wait for the Healing and sure enough, not work as well as they could have. Um, but so much up until that point uh, just hits r- like right on the head of what uh, what a Christian artist could be accomplishing in the late 80s. Uh, 1974 is such a great song. Shadows is such a great song. And there's... It's oh, good songwriting. Like, it it doesn't even need to be uh, no Christian music at this point. It just... It works on multiple levels. The lyrics are were surprisingly interesting, surprisingly honest. I think that was least what I was expecting to hear on this album. Um, but ultimately as far as never really considering myself an Amy Grant fan, I was extremely surprised and extremely pleased. So like Amy Grant was, was like, she was like almost considered edgy for her day, right? Like, yeah. Ooh, I mean, edgy, my goodness, the cover of unguarded where she wears a leopard coat. Yeah. Oh. And then she got a divorce. I mean, come on, like it doesn't get, and then, and then she wrote a song about environmentalism. Like it doesn't get much more edgy than that. So, yeah. So I guess I'm not surprised that maybe she might have been a little more honest than what you would expect. Like I think she was the yeah she was the CCM rebel of her day, um, which now she'd be considered very tame probably compared to to you know the classic crime or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know we we go back with our historical lenses off you're like what are you referring to <laughs> well and there was there was the whole thing like that for a time period in contemporary christian music it was like th- there was the phenomenon of the crossover song right like where you know the song right. that you don't know if it's about jesus or your or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever and that was like almost scandalous which is just seems ridiculous to think about it now because there was there was definitely a time period where they expected contemporary Christian artists to only write songs about Jesus, essentially. Like that was the only right. thing you could talk about. And now we have worship songs sung in churches that sound like it, they could be sung to a, <laughs> a girlfriend. Right. Exactly. But if you ever wrote like, just like a straight romantic song, it was like, Oh, well, yeah. Where are your much. priorities? Like, we can't have that. <laughs> yeah. Come on. I'm sorry. I was just reading song of Solomon and then this is what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much have very similar thoughts to uh, lead me on as you do. I mean, I really like the album. I don't think it's the greatest album of all time, the greatest Christian album of all time, but my goodness, it is really good. Um, I purchased this album a few years ago, probably like five or six years ago, specifically because it was the number one album on this list. 
And I guess I don't really know what I was expecting. I hadn't really listened to a lot of Amy Grant other than her Christmas album, which my family listened to all the time. Uh, I think I was really taken aback with the first song. Because, I mean, I figured that it would sound 80s, and 1974 definitely sounds really 80s. Synthesizers, (laughs) pop, all that stuff. But, my goodness, the chorus, the melody in the chorus... Man, oh, I just... What a hook. I know. That is just amazing. It's like overlapping hooks with uh, mm-hmm. harmonies that are so good that you're not sure which one is supposed to be the catchy part. Like, either of them could get stuck in your head. <laughs> and, Matt, I, I was hooked from that song. Kind of the yeah. same way, like, I was talking about Eric Champion last week in the first song, Dress Me Up. You know, just the hook. I heard the hook and I bought it, you know. And, uh, you know, Lead Me On was really good. Shadows I was really good. Um, you know, all these, I was just, I felt like it, every song was just nailing it. And I'm like, maybe, yeah, this might be the greatest album of all time. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think I ever at any point thought that this was the greatest album of all time. Is it a five-star album? I would say not. Uh, I think somebody might possibly be able to convince me that it was a five-star album. I think it's a strong four and a half. Um, and, but again, you know, you were talking about the songwriting. I was really taking it taken in by two songs in the middle. Uh, what about the love and If These Walls Could Speak? Yeah, um, both great. Neither of them were actually written by Amy Grant, so I'm not entirely positive if they're covers or not, or if they were just written by, like, contract writers or... Um, something like that, but you know, I totally bought into those songs. I don't know if they're my favorite songs on the album. I think 1974 is really difficult to beat. Um, I think you also nail it again with the la- with the album kind of trailing towards the end. You know, I think up through eight songs, I could definitely justify giving this album five stars. I think songs nine through twelve, I definitely sure would- enough. I think I definitely would need a little bit of convincing to um, make that happen. I think that putting the 80s-ness aside and the quote-unquote edginess aside, although this wasn't necessarily a super edgy album, um, this could play today. Yeah. And like I was saying before, you know, I've heard these songs on the radio. You know, there was enough traction in their day that yeah. people today can recognize them and modern CCM listeners can recognize them and appreciate them and like them. You know, imagine hearing Striper on the radio today. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Hey, Striper uh, is still cool. Hey, Striper is still cool. They had one of my top 10 albums of 2013. Um, hey, Timothy? Yeah. You're still cool. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. That's what my wife tells me. Maybe I agree with your wife more than I agree with you. You might. <laughs> possible (laughs) all right mark it's now my turn once again to assign an album to you uh hit me with it what torture will you make me undergo this week so you liked the last album i picked for you don't be so mean um just like the the last album i'm going to be skirting on the edge of what can actually be considered christian music partially because oh good you're so good at keeping up with Christian music and you've heard a lot more of it than I have. So finding an album for you is harder than finding an album for me. So what I'm going to suggest to you is an album that 
comes from a, a non-Christian band with a Christian lyricist. The Receiving End of Sirens. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, they only re- released two albums, both of which I would consider to be masterpieces. The first one is far more accessible, and I don't know. I just think it'll be interesting, especially since you're still uh, really going full form into uh, enjoying some heavier music. And this honestly isn't isn't that heavy. Um, they have a few things that are, are almost like breakdowns, but colored and used so differently that, that it doesn't quite fit. And there's just little moments of screaming throughout the album. Um, but it's this massive, like 70 minute long uh, concept-ish album, more in the sounds and the structure of the album, more than any uh, anything lyrical that ties it together. Um, so... The Receiving End of Sirens. And it's their first album, Between the Heart and the Synapse. I actually own that album. You own that album? I do. I bought it recently, in fact. And I I think I've listened to it once, and I don't remember anything about it. But I keep meaning to listen to it again. <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is one of the huge formative albums for me. Um, and then their second album uh, is kind of tied for my favorite album of all time so i might uh recommend the second album at a later date uh, especially depending on how you feel about the first one unless i listen to it then you can't true true you can go against uh you know it's not even against the rules just hey, against I'm my not, wishes i'm not gonna not listen to good music yeah i, I guess if I, if I know it exists the uh the the second album is notably different uh, than the first one so if it's like you just want more of the first album, uh, you won't you won't find that in the second album. Yeah, the uh, between the heart and the snaps is Christian in some interesting metaphorical ways. Like the first single and the first like actual song on the album is "Planning a Prison Break," uh, which the singer says is supposed to be a metaphor for the Christian salvation and regeneration experience. Um, whereas the second album uh, deals with actual issues of um, like Christianity and sin and uh, demonic warfare. Uh, it's littered with like C.S. Lewis references and stuff. But yeah, so that's, that is your assignment this week, Mr. Mark. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Ooh, my hips crap. Sicko. That was actually very satisfying. Ew. Thank you for listening to the Jesus Freak Hideout podcast, which is hosted by Mark Rice and me, Chase Tremaine. Production, editing, and music is also by me. The podcast is executive produced by John DiBiase and Christopher Smith. If you are interested in sponsoring the podcast, please send an email to Christopher at JesusFreakHideout.com. We'd also love to hear your feedback about the episode or to hear topics you'd like us to discuss. So feel free to tweet at us, comment on Facebook, or post on our website. You can also recommend our show using Overcast or rate our show on iTunes. Don't forget that this Friday, February 9th, marks the release of both the next JFH podcast episode as well as the brand new album Evidence from Elevation Collective. Thanks again to Elevation Collective for sponsoring this week's episodes. Now here's a sample of the album opener, Here As In Heaven, featuring Tasha Cobbs Leonard. <laughs>